Well, hello everyone. I think we're live and on air now. Hello. This is Carl. I guess that's you out there, Nelson. Yeah, this is Nelson here. Hi, I can get my webcam going as well. Yeah. Really heavily backlit. There we go. Hello. Um. So, um, I think my audio caught out there, cut out there for a minute. Can people, uh, can someone say something? See if I can hear anyone. Hello, I can hear you. Hello. Great. Okay. Hello. Hi, Melissa. And I don't know if we have that Paul here yet. So, um, I guess we can uh, get started here. Let's go around the table. Yeah. yeah. Do, uh, do we all know who we are? <laughs> well, I know who I am <laughs> on a good day. Ooh. Oh. Well, My face um, is moving around the screen. I guess I'll start. Uh, I'm Nelson Gearing. Uh, helped Carl, I uh, helped preceptor for Carl's Old Norse course just here and uh, teach philology and old dramatic things in general. Uh, and uh, I recently completed a doctorate in uh, Old Norse and Old English metrics. So that's me for starters. <laughs> okay. um, well, hello, everyone. Um, I hope you can hear me. Um, I'm Melissa Mayes. Um, I uh, just, just two years ago finished my PhD in Old English at Notre Dame, and I'm currently a postdoc at Western Michigan University where I'm teaching Old English. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm Carl Anderson. I finished my PhD much longer ago, <laughs> um, but also in, in Old Norse and Old English things. Uh, Cambridge. These days, I'm actually coming to you from sunny, for a change, South America, um, up on top of the Andes, um, where it's usually cloudy. Uh, and I do, uh, actually, at the university I teach in here, I do mostly things on um, um, training teachers of modern English, and I do some things with indigenous languages. But I also, as Nelson pointed out, um, was just recently teaching uh, Old Norse with him for Signum, and uh, so here I am. And Paul has just joined us. Hi, all. Perfect timing. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, yes. Okay, good. Okay. Is it my turn? Come on, here. Okay. Is it my turn now? Yeah, I think so. Oh, 
Okay, so I'm, I'm Paul Peterson, um, PhD in Germanic studies from University of Minnesota. I currently work at the University of Iowa, so I'm happy to be here. My research background is kind of all across Germanic philology, but um, Old Norse is my specialization, especially nicknames. So, um, yeah, happy to be here. Alright, so um, I think the, we're going, we want to keep things pretty informal um, for today, so I think we'll talk about whatever we want to talk about, <laughs> as long as that's something to do with Old Norse. Uh, I think we're happy to have questions come in from anyone who's, who's listening in today. Uh, you can type them into the question box. Um, otherwise, we had a few topics uh, we kind of kind of put together to, to talk about. One of them, uh, I don't know if we want to start with uh, talking about some modern connections with Old Norse and the ways that the stories keep on getting adapted and retold and uh, circulated around uh, contemporary literature and movies and comic books and what, whatever. Anyone has thoughts on that? I do that. <laughs> um, just a quick question, Nelson. Are you the only one who can see questions coming from people? I'm not sure whether or not. Oh, um, I can. I don't know. Or Melissa can, or Paul can. Have you? Has anybody typed in any questions? There are a couple of questions. Um, maybe I have to make you. Okay, that means I can't see them. Oh, now I can see things. Wait. Before I click on a button, can you see the questions or not? <laughs> I can see a couple of. Test questions, I think, from from Paul. <laughs> okay, I think you're maybe not getting all the. Uh, let me let me try let me try this. In that case, maybe not. I do not see questions okay. for what that's worth. Some questions have just magically appeared. Although do you see questions now? I do. Excellent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Richard and Kendra saying they can see and hear us, which is good. <laughs> Has anybody found the missing pages of the Codex Regis yet? <laughs> I oh. wish. Moving um, <laughs> 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 It's called Vilsunga Saga. That's the missing pages. <laughs> uh, Andreas Heusler <laughs> thinks so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's see, I'm just giving down, how many questions do we have? Do, 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 do. So what questions shall we, do we want to tackle these? We want to go back to uh, your subtle intro towards our friend Neil Gaiman. <laughs> uh, still skimming past whatever all we like, the, uh, really. <laughs> whatever we like. Still skimming past all these questions. So we've got one uh, person asking about origin stories. What drew us to Old Norse? Um, if we can keep each of us keep our answers down to under five or six hours, that would probably be good. <laughs> we've dealt with the missing pages of the Codex Regis. Uh, some thoughts on on Tom Shippey's review of Neil Gaiman, which we can tackle them. Well, let's quickly go through the um, what drew us to Old Norse things. And then we'll tackle Neil Gaiman since we've got a question on that anyway. Said 
Carl seizing supreme executive power. <laughs> so Nelson, what drew you to Old Norse? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, Tolkien was part of it. Uh, I think a lot of people discovered this. I kind of came through through two directions, actually, I think. I sort of discovered Old English, and then the, there, are, there are all these other old, old dramatic things out there as well. Um, and then I kind of also came out to the other direction, um, starting out wanting to do archaeology and looking at Indo-European things, and then getting into linguistics again from that angle, and coming down sort of via Gothic in the other direction. Um, so it was kind of a double a double thing, getting interested in Indo-European studies through a initially non-linguistic way, and through uh, uh, through Tolkien into just as a general doorway into to Germanic, and then. Um, it was really the the Eddic poetry first that kind of hooked me and got me wanting to read Old Norse and learn more about what what was all going on here. Um, which is why I tried to do metrics because that's a nice way to kind of balance linguistics and and literature and poetry kind of all all together. So, Melissa. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, well, I, I also sort of went in through the Old English route. Um, I took Old English as an undergrad um, purely by chance. I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. Um, it was a bit of a surprise the first day when I realized, oh, look, I'm learning new letters. Um, but I, I started with that um, and then started taking Old Norse as part of my first master's degree um, and as a way to continue on with Germanic languages. Um, and it was just just amazing to get into some of, especially um, as you said, the Eddic um, poetry, and then recognizing some of it from other things I had read, recognizing bits of, oh, look, that's in Tolkien. I've seen that before. Um, and eventually um, I went on to do the masters in Iceland as well, um, because I found that for my PhD dissertation, I needed a chapter in Old Norse, um, because you can't do the Old English without its background. Um, so, yeah, I started with Old English, and I just didn't stop until I got told North. So I suppose I'm up. <laughs> okay, so um, when I was a teenager, I was really into heavy metal. That hasn't actually changed that much. It was this sort of black metal route, um, merging into black metal, uh, sorry, Viking metal, folk metal, that sort of thing. And then as a result, of course, like any good nerd, I wanted to learn uh, Old Norse because that's the language of the Vikings and of course then I'm a Viking so that's just I'm from Minnesota it is part of my kind of cultural heritage just um, being Swedish background and um, so I, I started actually quite quite early in my undergrad days taking Old Norse um, I think I've taken five years of the language that's kind of insane I don't quit it's, it's one of those things so um, so yeah, even when I did my bachelor's, I had already taken two years of Old Norse courses. So I've studied pretty much all the language and literature, but it's, I mean, I've been more involved in it um, in the last five years because finding a research topic, uh, working in a Germanic philology, you know, there's nothing sexier than talking about um, uh, dirty nicknames, uh, particularly swear words and talking about medieval culture and humor. So it's my favorite thing to kind of shock value factor is, is just sort of part of my nature and um, my favorite nickname I should tell everyone if they haven't um, ever heard, I mean everyone knows about uh, Leif Erikson is Leif the Lucky, Eric 
uh, Eric the Red, who discovered Greenland and, and so forth. But one of my favorite nicknames is Foodhunder, which means uh, cunt dog, uh, which is, you know, every, it's polite conversation. Uh, so just telling everybody it's uh, sort of a level in a way to see into the window of medieval humor and to see that they had the same kind of, um, I don't know, jocular locker room type humor that, that you know, I, I, I kind of grew up with this. I played hockey growing up. Um, that's not a word that would have shocked anyone on my hockey team, I imagine, in the locker room. So it's, it's just imagining that medieval people had the same level of, of uh, comfort, I guess, in using dirty language. They did have swear words. They did have forbidden things to say. And I think uh, insults are a huge part of Norse culture, and it's kind of always been an interest of mine, just figuring out how, what's the most um, it's it's not a coincidence that the word troll is Scandinavian in origin, for example. So trolling people on the internet today, and um, uh, so it, it it actually has a very long tradition in Old Norse all the way to modern Scandinavia. So it's it is that old, <laughs> anyhow. Well, you've just given this video when it goes on YouTube uh, some kind of parental warning or something, uh -oh. probably. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess I'm I'm last up, um, and I sort of take in a lot of those influences that everybody's mentioned. Yeah, you know, when I was eight, you know, my parents sat down and made me read The Hobbit and stuff like that. And there were runes and and dwarves with funny names and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, much like Paul, I have my family moved away from uh, Minnesota a generation or two before he has, obviously. But uh, I have a ridiculously Scandinavian name, so it was a bit of the family background. My parents like to blame everything on my aunt, who gave me a, a Kevin Crossley Holland's retellings of Norse mythology when I was like 12. And they were like, well, that's why we had to pay for all your university. Um, <laughs> if only she had given you something, <laughs> you know, something else. <laughs> But anyway, you know, that, and then it was just, you know, from there I was a lost cause, you know, and as a teenager I read all the, you know, the Henry Treese and Rosemary Sutcliffe books. I was trying to figure out runic inscriptions with, you know, and deduce Germanic philology from first principles. Oh, look, this word in English is like that word in German is like that word in this runic inscription. Um, and, uh, then I, you know, I, I insisted when I was a teenager I wanted to learn a Scandinavian language, and that was impossible at, in, you know, the, at the time. But we found a local gra psychology graduate student who happened to be from Iceland who knew nothing about teaching Icelandic, but you know was willing to give it a go for twenty bucks, you know, a session or something. So I started learning Icelandic, and then I went off to university and studied Old Norse, and discovered that all the things I had learned to read, like Morgan Blathers newspaper articles where, you know, and now I needed to learn, you know, the trolls take you and y'all calls this lawful defense and these weren't the phrases and, and vocabulary I'd learned, but, you know, I could get there and, you know, off I went. So there we all are. <laughs> um, that's us. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, what shall we talk about now? Have we got more questions coming in? Uh, the next one's about spelling and like the regular, the irregularities of English. Oh God! Uh, and this is one of my expertise because I've been a language teacher for seven years or so, and um, I haven't taught Icelandic, but having taught Swedish, uh, all other Germanic languages are much more phonetic in terms of their their orthography, which is the way that they're written. So even Danish. Um, 
Danish is just ugly. No offense to Danish people. It's, it's regular in the pronunciation, rather. So um, English has a unique history in that we actually preserve our etymologies in some senses. So I kind of find that enjoyable. One of the nice things about reading English is that you can kind of see a snapshot into the past. Whereas when you learn, for example, modern Swedish or modern German, you don't get as much of a hint of what the form was, say, 800 years ago. So that that's kind of something that... Um, uh, that I've always found um, pretty useful when you're learning these other languages is that they're they're much more regular. Even French, uh, which is notoriously hard to learn the the orthography and the phonetics uh, initially. I'm thinking of like the word for a um, like a lazy boy, like an armchair is fauteuil. I think it's nine characters, um, two two syllables. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, the next part of the question is English words that come from Norse. So I have, I have a short, I actually created a list for this, um, but the key to look for is if it starts with an SC or an SK, chances are probably a Norse word. Or if it has to do with dying, that's a Norse word. Like dying. <laughs> mud, uh, dirt, anything like that. So those are Norse words. Sky previously. Sky. Mm -hmm. I was in when I was uh, I was at, at an old Norse class. I was sitting in on one of the undergraduate old, old Norse classes while I was doing my PhD, and my the professor was giving was talking about old Norse borrowings into English and said, you know, sky meant you know, and this was in England. Sky meant you know cloud in old Norse, and it's had a kind of semantic shift. I'm not quite sure you know how that happened. I said, have you have you looked outside the window? <laughs> It's been solid clouds for the last, you know, three months. <laughs> That's how. <laughs> it still means cloud in England. <laughs> Just everywhere else, it means sky. <laughs> so yeah, S S C and S K are good ones. Also, it is worth noting that the semantic shift is is quite uh, great in the sense that. Not every Norse borrowing replaced the native English word. It made uh, just sort of supplement it, and then yeah, they diverged into their own separate meanings. So well, sometimes they diverge, and I think sometimes they may have come together. Like some of the like take, give, get, mm -hmm. they kind of get melanged, and you can't really. Sometimes it's even hard to tell with the phonology in Middle English. Like, did this word come from? It has like a you know. Sometimes it looks like it has a Norse meaning more of the Norse semantics, but with an Old English derived spelling, but sometimes it looks more like it has the Old English derived semantics, but the Norse spelling. So I think it got very mixed up in there. This is actually kind of one of our, our theoretical topics, the influence of English on Old Norse and the exciting claims uh, that some have made um, that English is directly descended from Old Norse. But um, we could go there. <laughs> I, I have a very strong opinion on that. I way. think probably most people do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, does anyone have like a solid background on this? Because I haven't heard much about about this claim. So is there like a, a thumbnail sketch of why why are we now claiming this? We're not. We're not. But, yeah. I, We're not. I, I, but, uh, I'm not about to jump in and like defend it. Don't worry. <laughs> um, it was kind of doing the rounds on the like you know the kind of science academia blogs for at various points in the last couple of years. Um, 
I think it was kicked off specifically by Joseph Emmons and John Farland writing up uh, a book that basically well, I think it got kicked off before their book. I think well, one of them made yeah. comments in an interview or something, and then yeah. but there was no publications behind it, and then then the book came. I think, yeah. but. Uh, they, they jumped the gun a little bit on the press release by about maybe, two years, I think. <laughs> maybe that was a good thing. Um, <laughs> um, but that's the background, that there were these two guys. One of them, I think, is in, in Czechoslovakia. Yeah. I can't remember where he's based. And then um, Farland, Farland is in Norway, I guess, um, somewhere. Um, but they made the claim that Old English, in, sorry, English, modern English, is more directly descended from Old Norse than it is really from anything else. And it's essentially a Scandinavian language. That was the claim in a nutshell. And I think most of their argument, they tried to support it with things about semantics more than other things because there's nothing else. But before I say anything more about what I think, why doesn't Paul, who sounds like he has a, possibly a, a more colorful. <laughs> well, you know, when you're trying to get research funding, you'll say anything outrageous and stupid just to get the money. And that's a perfect example because the the argument I think was based on the simplicity of, of modern Scandinavian syntax compared with English, which is to say we've lost almost all of our grammar. Like, I mean, we only have cases left in the forms of pronouns, for example. Um, and the same thing happened in the Scandinavian languages, obviously Icelandic and Faroese being the exceptions because they're a little more archaic, in some cases purposefully. Um, but the it's a dumb argument on its face. Um, the two phenomena are related because they're both Germanic languages. And that is actually a trend that we've seen since Indo-European is the simplification of the endings, for example. That's something that they were trying to claim and also just that we've we share these words because the word they them and there is Scandinavian in origin that therefore we are now speaking a Scandinavian language it was just a way to get money and um, I'm sure they got a lot of it because they're rich and not in Norway as you know it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world so it's a great place to make up a stupid idea and get a lot of money for it um, I, mean, I mean yeah sorry to be, to be fair to an argument that I don't buy at all, uh, they, they, they did make a lot of syntactic-based arguments that they were making the claim that a lot of very specific and detailed features, which they're, they can talk about in some detail because they're most syntacticians, well, I think uh, are similar in but but the um, gone here, but yeah, the the idea that just because Middle English. Uh, Syntax starts, you know, some some f detailed features of word order look like detailed features of Norse word order. A doesn't necessarily mean that those features came from Norse. They could be convergence, res both responding to similar linguistic trends. And even if it, even if there's some contact-based influence on English, I mean, it's not like that would revolutionize our understanding of the history of English language. Yeah. It's, you know, we've already got influence on word lexicon. We've already got influence on even the pronouns and things like that. So a bit of syntactic influence wouldn't be. I think surprising. It's just, but they've sort of hyped up the implicate supposed implications of that. To, and to what you bring up there is actually, I think, what tries to be the central part of their argument, which is that well, syntactical borrowing never happens, and so because there's syntactical similarities, we're saying that they're borrowed, and therefore, because it never happens, it must be because there 
inherited. And that's actually, you know, not entirely true. Syntactical borrowing is is less usual than obvious things like loan words, but it does happen. Um, you can find examples of it. And since we already know Old Norse has a really deep impact on Middle English, certainly, and that influence ripples onwards into modern English, like you say, it's not a surprise to find if there, you know, I mean, some of the syntactical things could be convergence, could be universals, some of them could be inf Norse influence. Um, but they kind of, you know, it's almost like they want, it's like you say, if you, uh, Paul says, you know, how can we get funding? Oh, by saying that um, English is a North Germanic language. Um, so what are we going to do? Well, that's our starting point. Can we find any, uh, in, uh, you know, evidence that supports this? Um, well, there's the obvious loan words oh, with their loan words. Um, is there phonological continuity? Is there is there you know all the other standard features of Scandinavian languages, the SK verbs, the postposition definite article, all the other things that make North Germanic just blindingly obviously North Germanic? No. Okay, we'll just pretend that doesn't matter, and we'll talk about syntax. Uh, <laughs> so it's almost like how can we justify this insane conclusion which we're going to make? Um, and all the things they talk about, all the evidence they present, I think, you know, a lot of it is evidence for Norse, you know, and English contact, but it's that, it's Norse and English contact. And, you know, it's the usual kind of thing that linguists go mad about when this stuff goes flying around the internet at high speed. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, non-linguists don't understand what's really going on here and people will believe, you know, anything that comes from a press release. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. <laughs> So much for that. English is still West Germanic. <laughs> the top 100 words are almost primarily Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. It's, if you, if, you know, you look at the most frequently used words in English, we're still primarily an Anglo-Saxon speaking language. Um, and, and this stuff has been done before. There are all these people in the 70s and stuff who said, oh, English is a Creole of, you know, Fran you know Norman French and Anglo-Saxon or whatever. And it was like, well, Creole is a sliding scale, right? I mean, you move from loan words up to Creole. Um, so is English a Creole? Not really in the way that we see other Creoles. Is it a North Germanic language? No. <laughs> Can people claim this and people will actually take it seriously? Well, well, that's what we should be concerned about. You know, those of us who are trying to like, you know, be good old or scholars. Oh my gosh, look at the state of knowledge about language and philology and, you know, language and culture and the things that are part of everybody's lives, no matter what they're doing, you've got language and culture. Nevertheless, you can seriously claim that English is a Scandinavian language and it will be ser taken seriously. That's a little worrying. <laughs> you know, it's, it's up there with flat earth, you know. So we have another question about Jesse Biok's new textbooks. Um, have any of you guys read, read them or seen them yet? I have. Okay. I've, yeah, I've looked through them, but I've not tried to use them to teach or anything. So I don't have like a, a teacher's perspective, but they are there. <laughs> um, I looked at them a bit just recently because Nelson and I, Nelson and I, were doing this, um, this old Norse course. And when uh, I was putting it together, it was like, well, what, you know, books are we going to use? Um, and we didn't go with Jesse Bagg's book, partially because, you know, I hadn't, I think, actually seen them in time, because um, I'm down here in South America, and it takes like thousands of years to get anything here and gazillions of dollars. Um, so I just hadn't seen them. I think they're pretty, I think they're pretty good. We ended up going with um, the Viking Society's textbooks, which are, have the advantage for an online course of being freely available and online and things. Um, 
Jesse, Jesse, Jesse's books are are good, and they're they're very lengthy. And I don't think in the kind of course we did at Signum, we could have gotten through all of them because they're long. I mean, especially there's two, and they're reasonably thick. Um, but I think they're good, and I think for somebody who was trying to do self-study, they would be a lot more practical than anything else that you can get right now, because um, they're they're kind of look like they're designed for that. Um, my only complaint, with, my major complaint with him was largely cosmetic in that he didn't use hooked O. Um, where's my hooked O? Uh, he used O umlaut, and I was like, ah, oh, so modern Icelandic. Yeah. Where's my hooked O? Come on, we've got Unicode now. When you teach Old Norse, or when you're learning it, did you guys learn to speak it as you like speak modern Icelandic, or did you do them separately? That's... Oh, I just learned modern Icelandic pronunciation. That was just the, the choice my instructor made. Um, but yeah. I learned it. Sorry. I, I mean, I learned I from linguists mainly. Uh, there must be a gap <laughs> I guess. Okay, go ahead. I'll All wait right. for a moment. <laughs> Uh, I learned mainly from linguists who strongly favored doing a reconstructed pronunciation. So it wasn't until a couple of years later that I really learned anything about modern Icelandic at all and then started to learn that in its own right. But, so. Well, I actually learned a bit of modern Icelandic before I even started learning Old Norse, and that really kind of ruined things for me. I think most of my teachers who taught Old Norse also used modern Icelandic pronunciation. That's that's really common in, in North America. and the and the United Kingdom certainly. Um, I don't know about on continental Europe what people are doing. You know what kind of pronunciation they're teaching in you know Germany or Holland or, or in Denmark. Wherever. They teach Old Norse pronunciation. I've, I found out. Well, I, I also you know I learned at some point modern Swedish, like you're saying. You you teach and that you know seem. I mean, I'm sure if you if you're used to modern Swedish or you're used to modern one of the continental Scandinavian languages. That actually, there's a lot of there that seems to be a lot more like Old Norse. I mean, modern Icelandic has gone a long way, as I think you know most of you know. Um, so I went backwards, and when Nelson and I were doing this recent course, we were trying to use you know reconstructed pronunciation for some of the philological purposes. Like Nelson says, he learned from linguists, and so they use a reconstructed pronunciation, and that's kind of helps, I think, people see closer the connections with some of the other you know medieval Germanic languages, Old English particularly. Um, and if you're used to, you know, if you've learned Latin, if you've learned Old English, if you're looking at Gothic or Old High German, the reconstructed pronunciation gets you a little closer than, than modern Icelandic, which is like, woo. Um, <laughs> you, you say a double L how. Um, um, but it was really hard for me because I kept sliding back and forth between bits of modern Icelandic and and bits of modern Swedish while I tried to pretend that, you know, I was comfortable speaking 13th century and it really, I mean, reconstructed Old Norse is a really kind of specific moment. <laughs> you know, it's like before we have merger of, you know, before AE and OE merge and before Hokdo does whatever it does, and, um, you know, long A turns into a diphthong. And, um, but after we've lost nasality and um you know what is exactly doing in its pronunciation so you have to kind of pick you know which decade of reconstructed old norse are we going to speak but <laughs> um, <Bell> 03. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the teacher and and, and then all our sagas were written. All our manuscripts <laughs> are like fifteen hundred anyway. But yeah. the, the sunny summer of twelve oh three. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> And are we speaking an uncouth West Fjords dialect, or are we, you know? <laughs> so, but I, I think you know that both 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 approaches have their merits. I mean, obviously, if you want to learn modern Icelandic and talk to Icelanders and things, modern Icelandic pronunciation works very well. If you want to look at the philological things and you know try to pretend that you know we're we're going to speak Eddic poetry like you know they did back in the good old 12th century that we imagine it was written or whenever um then reconstructed pronunciation is also kind of fun um <laughs> let's all go you know talk about runic inscriptions with nat natality um let's speak elf dalian um <laughs> Which, by the way, is more conservative than modern Icelandic. It's been confirmed now. Really? On yeah. what criteria? Um, I'm not disagreeing, but I just want to know. Um, like, what specifically makes it more archaic? I only mean, apart from nasality. The retention of W of W. I mean, that okay. blows Icelandic out of the That's water. Right. No, absolutely. Okay, I'm good for that. Phonologically yeah. more conservative. Phonologically <laughs> more conservative. Yeah. And they do the double L sound there, by the way, as well. So the like the the like the modern Icelandic one. Yeah, yeah. Which it's I can't actually longer. use at the beginning of a syllable. Yeah. <laughs> more like the unvoiced one too, which is okay. just more of a sound. So less of the or you do the T, you know. Um, anyhow, um, let's see. What other good question? Did we skip past anything? My my laptop screen is not big enough. I'm not sure that we actually ever did right? talk about uh, uh, Gaiman's Norse myths. Oh yeah. But I can't talk about that because, despite my uh, my, I would have kind of liked to have read it by now, but I just haven't gotten hold of the copy yet. So maybe someone else has gotten a look at it. I've read it a bit. Any either of you, uh, Melissa, Paul? I I've not read it yet, but I have used um, his American Gods and taught that next to the edit, um, which works well. Been out longer. All of you are the new. And it's on no, TV. I watch the Viking show frequently. So I'm on, what is it? The end of season four, we're going into and season I five. I'm on a Marth. And yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've, I guess I have, um, I, I'm going to confess, I haven't like, read all the whole thing in detail, um, but I have read some of it. And uh, so if anybody's wondering, um, it actually. When you read, when he, if you read his introduction, he says, "Well, when I was doing this, I specifically didn't go back to a couple of the retellings that I was familiar with, like, like Kevin Crossley Hollands and somebody else's whose name I've now forgotten." But it actually reminded me a bit of that. Like I said, you know, when I was, you know, an early teen or you know whatever, I was, you know, devouring Kevin Crossley Holland's Norse myths, which at the time was like the only Norse myths that. I saw. Uh, and now, of course, we have the glory of, you know, the internet and Amazon and stuff like that. And you can just order, you know, everybody's Norse myth um, and everybody's prose edda and everybody's poetic edda. Uh, and you can get them on your, you know, even in South America, I can get them on my, you know, tablet uh, in two seconds. But at the time, it was the only Norse myth there was. And, and you know, so I, I read it and it was really, I thought it was really good for, um, for as an introduction for a relatively young reader. I still do. And I think Neil Gaiman's retelling falls into that category. Um, when I read it now, and I read a review actually of 
Neil Gaiman's. There have been lots of gushing reviews about Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, because um, everybody loves Neil Gaiman, especially if you're the kind of person who writes literary reviews. Um, um, I thought the best one was actually from the LA Times, um, but I did see some reviews that said, "Well, this is you know this seems like it's pitched maybe you know his sentences are a little bit simple and the word choice is not too complex. It seems like it's kind of pitched for a younger reader," and the reviewer seemed a little bit disappointed by this. And I thought, you know, not all of it. You know, Neil Gaiman isn't afraid to shy away some from some things that Victorians probably would have certainly done, and even you know other retellers. A generation or so ago might have done so he he has an, he's a little bit edgier but he's Neil Gaiman um, but I think that's actually exactly the kind of people who a retelling should be aimed at um, you know get them while they're young <laughs> like probably happened to all of us you know I think that's I think it's a you know who should be reading this book it should be you know 10 year olds 12 year olds you know 14 year olds whoever it is um, that's you know, if you don't, if you're not already into it by then, well, where are you going to, when are you going to get into it later? Maybe, you know, some of you did, but I think that's a, that's a good thing. So I think it's a good, I'm going to try it out and see if, you know, it holds the interest of my like seven-year-old daughter and, and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know when next time we do an Old Norse Roundtable. Um, but I think it's good. It's a, it's a retelling. He's a smart guy. Um, he writes like Neil Gaiman. If you like Neil Gaiman, you'll like it. Could we quibble over some of his interpretations? Sure, but we could do that with any retelling. We could do that with Snorri. Um, so. <laughs> so there we go. That's that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> so I don't know. Go and try it out. Uh, you know, read the sample chapter. <laughs> so there's a, a question here about German dialects um, and about trying to preserve Proto-German. I'm not sure if you mean Proto-Germanic. Uh, minority dialects. I think we're we all like dialects, though, right? I mean, that's just something that we do. Otherwise, we, we learn a language. Uvdalsk. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not a dialect. Sorry. <laughs> so, like, this is a standard like Hochdeutsch and, and Low German, um, yeah, standard Dutch, and so on. Well, I mean, look at Frisian. Look at those poor Frisians on their own, their little islands with their own little language. It happens to be the closest to English, but they get no attention. You know, so it's, I mean, from linguists, you look at Anglo-Frisian. They from Frisian and then written a book about it, and yeah. they could have gotten grant money. So if we, if, yeah. <laughs> That's how we did it. <laughs> if we want to talk about English as a Scandinavian language, it's <laughs> the release. <laughs> Frisian is closer to Scandinavia, therefore, Maybe we are closer. <laughs> well, well, there are interesting things in dialect. Like North Frisian has, I think, some influence from you know from North Germanic, you know, Danish. And there aren't there some dialects of like Yusk, which have not postposition definite articles, but actually have prepossession definite articles. And I don't know whether that's influence from Frisian. No, that's the German. Or German, yeah. Whether it's later influence or whether it's some like weird archaic retained feature, I you know I think I had a bunch of use like great grandparents, but nobody I thought to ask them. Um. <laughs> It'd be like um, how do you say it? Den Den Denske Crew, uh, the Danish pub, instead of like the other languages that would have a double definite. I think right. that's a, I think that's a German influence though. That in could Danish. be. They're the only ones who do it wrong. Um, Swedish and Norwegian are proper. 
<laughs> I know I'm harping on Danish a lot, but if you listen to the phonetics, they're they're horrible sounding. It sounds like uh, English on steroids with our guttural sounds when we say it. We swallow the T sound. Um, they do that with everything possible. Well, I remember somebody telling me also that, you know, Danish is modern English, Swedish is middle English, and, and then, you know, Icelandic is old English. So. More or less. <laughs> Except old English okay. is more like German also. So yeah. it's the... Faroe East then. Old German. Faroe East is old English. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Irish. Oh, I always like the uh, description of Faroe East as Icelandic spoken with a Texan accent. Yeah. Voichingor. Not okay. more and so on. Um, there's a question here about. Although, just to follow up on that, I think that you know the point German influence on Danish, you know, changes things. Blah blah blah. That you know takes us back. We can't just say things are dis necessarily descended from a thing. Lots of stuff happens. You know, it's a mess. History um, and languages tend to reveal. <laughs> That mess, much more than 19th century, nice, neat, stambam, you know, trees would like us to believe. Um, yeah. So now Eltelian is not a dialect, it's a language. And the, the point about German with, with Swiss, um, you know, there's the, how they define it as high versus low German. And I mean, that kind of has to do with geographically. Swiss is literally in the mountains, so they're the highest German. Um, and they even retain the features of the, the you know, the German sound chip, the second sound chip. So the first one is what we all have in common, all Germanic languages, but the second German sound chip, uh, that continued in Swiss German where they are the highest of German. So they basically have German properly done, whereas what is standard German is a little bit of a mix. Um, there's some high German features. There are some low German words that sort of snuck in and became standard. So when it comes to the standard versions of languages, it's often political, uh, historical. I mean, it's where where is Luther from? Luther, he's from Saxony, I believe. And, you know, and the area where he was from, they were speaking high German, but there were a lot of low German traces. So that's kind of what became standard written German. And then the standard spoken form sort of trails after the literary so that's often what happens in languages. Um, I, I guess in the United States we don't have as much variation, but uh, it, it takes a quick trip to Europe to travel one town to the next. It's a different dialect. Uh, in the U.S., it takes you know a day to go from one dialect to another, you know, by land anyway. Uh, so it's sort of, and our dialects are not as pronounced. Um, the the sort of joke is in Norway, if you just travel across the fjord, you're speaking a different language, and that's not untrue uh, in the sense that the dialects are so significantly different. I mean, vocabulary, pronunciation, phonetics, everything is more variable in its native habitat. So it's it's kind of remarkable because Icelandic doesn't have dialects in the, in the regular traditional sense because they're not strong enough, the features are not unique enough. They might have been in the Middle Ages, um, but the meaning of the all thing, I think, is why they say, oh, well, everyone came together once a year and therefore the language sort of uh, <laughs> assimilated into one less uh, definable dialect. I mean, it's really a single dialect. But you, you raise some interesting points there. I mean, one th another thing is that, okay, maybe most of the people who settled Iceland came from some part of Norway, but they were coming from other areas as well. So to an extent, you may have had some kind of leveling 
going on. And then there's that eternal question that people go back and forth on, you know, in our Huggins, uh, you know, common Scandinavian term, you know, what is it that makes the language that we see, not that we can see very much, but when we look at the languages in the rudic inscriptions, whether we're talking about Viking Age Norse or you know, ancient Norse or proto-Norse, whatever we call it, you know, there are things that, you know, obviously there are changes and then there are things that get, you know, spread around, you know, to what extent are we justified in talking about dialect levelings or creations in that period? And that's something which I think, you know, is still being kicked around and, and debated. Um, you know, things like the post-position definite article, which there's a, there was a, a question about here, somebody's asking. Um, the question was by preposition definite articles, do you mean prefix definite articles just to usually use coming? Well, um, English has a prepositioned definite article. We say the cat. Um, whereas uh, old, you know, old Norse and Scandinavian languages have a post-position definite article. They say katten, you know, and or something like that. Um, <laughs> and that's the cat. Uh, and then there's other things, you know, mixes of the two, which gets us confused. But that's a, a that's a feature which must have emerged somewhere and spread around. And you know, there are those interesting questions about how does it happen? You know, Iceland still doesn't have marked dialects, but now certainly Norway does. Um, what? How? To what extent was that true in? you know, 900, that's an interesting question. <laughs> Very difficult to get at. So this is jumping a little bit, but um, okay. about the language, uh, about uh, asking if you can give us some examples from the Eddas where knowing Norse is crucial to the meaning of the poetry. Uh, I think we'll defer this one to a certain poetry expert here. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I. I'm not entirely sure what that what that means, because uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe like, like, you know, there's, there's probably examples of like of you know where maybe like or puns, or yeah, something. things like that. I mean, yeah, if they, you look at like the skaldic poetry, uh, like the drogfat, it's it's really actually, hard. Knowing to translate. Old Norse doesn't help you with skaldic poetry at all. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, you still have to decipher it basically, but but to, you know, look at it as poetry in the slightest. You know, to see what's going on with it as poetry, you really need to to have you need to understand why because it's really strictly regulated. It's every syllable in its place, pretty much. Uh, complicated in rhyme, complicated well, not complicated, but alliteration. Um, and you know, you you to understand the constraints that these poets were working with and the the artistry that's going into that. I don't think has almost any meaning in translation a lot of the, a lot of those especially the really you know the really highly wrought skaldic stuff um i mean edic poetry highly i think translates in all senses of the phrase <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> i think edic poetry translates a lot better on the whole there's some really good translations i think it's still better in the norse if nothing else because it, it sounds better it really you you feel the you know, I mean, poetry usually sounds better than the language it was, it was written in. But but I think you can get a lot more out of the more narrative poetry and a lot of the more mythical poetry in translation. Um, I still would urge you to learn Norse and read Norse. Uh, read, read the original, it's much better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sign up for our class. It's awesome. Uh, um, but there are some things where I remember. Isn't there like some bit of wordplay? Some I think it's in one of the Eddie poems where, where, you know, Loki. Um, and it, like it's one of the. It's like where Thor is, you know, cross-dressing or something, and Loki uses like a, you know, a feminine, 
you know, adjectival form or appropriate form. And there, there's some joke or something where you really can't put it into English because it depends on the morph morphology of Old Norse. I can't remember exactly what it was, but there's something like that. Uh, and that's something which, which is, which must have been, you know, I assume was screamingly funny in, in Old Norse. Maybe we can ask a native speaking Icelander, you know, um, can you, maybe modern Icelanders still make jokes like that, I don't know. Um, but there are some things like that, which, you know, you'd have to have, you can only deal with that in a footnote in, in, uh, in, in an English translation. It's like, you know, watching anime where there are jokes, you know, about things in Japanese culture and wordplay and things. And, you know, you practically have to have footnotes to the subtitles. Um, otherwise it just, you know, makes, what did they, what did they say? You know, so there are things like that in Old Norse, which you, they're not everywhere, but there are some things where, you really don't get it unless you have seen it in, in the language. And you're like, oh, wait, you know, Loki's making a fun, funny cross, you know, gender joke. joke. Um, what, you know, what a, what a ham. Um, <laughs> so there are a few things like that. Uh, somebody mentioned Carolyn Larrington's uh, also book which on Norse mythology, which also came out at exactly the same time. I don't think I've seen it yet, um, but I'm sure it's great because Carolyn is, is great and her poetic uh, edit, uh, translation is a nice poetic edit translation. <laughs> I, I think I've seen too many to think about them, <laughs> but... Um, Seems to have a whole yeah, kind of sudden burst of them in like last, I don't know, decade yeah, or something. Yeah, so that's great. Um, <laughs> everybody should go out and buy a copy of everybody's North Mythology translation retelling for all of your relatives for Christmas, <laughs> especially the younger ones who might come and go to university and take our classes. <laughs> uh, skimming through the questions and things again. Let's see what else have we got going on. Early, early text to, to learn Old Norse with. Um, like, so mentions Bayak and Gordon and the Ale Saga. Yeah, I was like looking for recommendations on, on Oh, Kendra mentions some gender stuff. Sorry, I just saw that, Kendra. Um, so there you go. Kendra, Kendra, Kendra defer, uh, affirms modern Icelandic morphological humor. Excellent. <laughs> um, there's a question here on on good sagas to start translating with. Someone's work through work through Bayek and wondering if Egil's project is a good one to, to work with. Um, which you know, I say why not? Um, I tend to also um, push um, both in a saga because it's really short and because you'll recognize the story elements a lot. Um, the characters also last bit of saga. It's got some crazy so stuff. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Hrapkatla is always a good one. Uh, Hrapkatla oh, yeah. saga. Oh, yeah. That's a good short one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're reading through Gordon, you should, I think you should have that one in there. Yeah, Hrapkatla yeah, saga is, is there in, in, in Gordon. I think there isn't, aren't there bits of Ego saga? And yeah, there's a lot of small excerpts. I, I prefer Gordon. Ego saga is fun, too. I think, I think that's important. You don't want something that's going to be horribly complex language or, and you don't want something that's going to be like too dull. Because <laughs> there are some one sagas out there that nobody reads yeah. and they're not, all, they're not all literary masterpieces. No. Um, but those ones are, I mean, Egil is a crazy psychotic guy and that's fun. 
um, there's a lot of nuttiness in 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 Yal Saga, which is like long, but it has some great stuff. Volsunga Saga, like you say, is is uh, has a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, those are all good. Um, I remain a fan of of Oizen or Alzen or however we're going to pronounce them, and his his very bad word bear, as one of my friends put it. Um, <laughs> not Oizen and his bear again. <laughs> but I, I, I like want something. You know, it's a good that's a good starting point if you if you're not ready to tackle the full on saga yet. Someone suggests that we're picking on Texans. Um, no, my wife's from Texas, so I would never do that. <laughs> never, never, ever. I like the sound of Faroese. It's not picking on it. <laughs> the saga, of the Faroese saga. Um, <laughs> oh, someone asked yeah, about Gothic. Yeah, um, have we all learned Gothic? <laughs> Learn is a strong word. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I know some of you started, uh, Melissa, for example, you said you learned Old English and then you moved to Old Norse. And, and you know, I, I learned Old Norse and I, I never really formally learned or studied Old English, but I always just treated it as, you know, a good person arriving in the Dane Law would, saying, ah, it's pretty similar. I, I'm sure I can read this. I'll just skim <laughs> through the glossary and flavor here. And <laughs> Looks pretty much the same. <laughs> They've got preposition definite articles, but that's about it, you know. So, same with Gothic. I don't think I ever took a class on Gothic. Did any of you have any of you taken a class on Gothic? Well, that would be me. <laughs> Last of the red hot Gothic students. So yeah, I've taken every Germanic language practically, except Old Frisian, but that's easy because that's just Old English and Old Saxon right in the middle. It's a couple law texts and just weird spelling. See, that's how I treated. All the other old German. <laughs> no, it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. No, no I actually, old old Frisian was kind of. I mean, like once you get used to it, 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 if you know old English, it reads very easily. But actually, the first time encountering it was really kind of like, wait, what is this thing? Actually, that's more I'm expecting. Three hundred percent. I have the same trouble with modern Dutch. I'm sitting there staring at these. Like, I know that in some ways these are closer to English than anything else. But wow, your orthography is really messing with my head. Oh. <laughs> um. Well, it's like when you read, is it Genesis B, and which is, you know, the English, Anglo-Saxon, and then you find out that, oh, it's actually Old Saxon because they finally found this hidden manuscript in the Vatican, and it is Old Saxon. Zebras was right. With Everything a, Zebras said is correct. No, strong Old English right. graphical dialect. <laughs> well, they, they obviously treated it this way, too. And that's actually going back to the Old Norse and English thing. There have been some... Like nice, you know, discussions recently on, you know, what was going on in, you know, Viking Age England, and you know, I think there were a number of different things going on. But you can just, I mean, going back to the Gothic thing. Well, apart from Paul, who actually learned Gothic, um, has anybody has anybody done heavy metal lyrics in Gothic yet? I know there was those guys who did it in old Norwegian. Has it been done? Yeah, look on YouTube. I don't remember who it is anymore, but. I've, I've seen Send that. me the link. Okay, <laughs> look into that later. Um, <laughs> so I mean, there you go. Tolkien wrote drinking songs. That's well, it's, yes, but you know, use <laughs> the Sorry. double bass and guitars, and we're good. So, um, but you know, I don't. I think you know one of the problems with 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 Gothic is you this you know there's only so much to read, and it's old 
you know, it's, it's New Testament translations. And so it's not quite as fun as Volsunga Saga. Um, and so people tend to go and, and learn Gothic either because they're doing Germanic philology or because they have to write a, a heavy metal song. Um, or a drinking song, uh, depending on whether it's, you know, 2017 or 1917. Um, so I, don't, I, think, I think that's, you know, Gothic was at one point like the star language of Germanic philology. I mean, that was what everybody in the, the 19th century got excited about when they discovered that, you know, there was Gothic and you could decipher it and read it and compare it to all these other things. And, you know, I'm probably Nelson can say more about this. All our, you know, verb classes and everything in when we talk about Germanic languages are all kind of predicated on the analysis of Gothic and the use of it to reconstruct Proto-Germanic. But it's kind of gone away a little bit, or that's my perception in terms of a thing that, you know, you're kind of expected to learn unless you're Paul. Um, you have to take it. It's a shame, I think, because the... Uh, it's, it's, I mean, if you've got any linguistic, like if you got any interest in the in the Germanic comparative grammar side of things at all, uh, learn Gothic because it's, I mean, it's it's really, I mean, I don't think I've said, of, would say this of very many languages, but it actually has a beautiful morphology. It does. <laughs> it's, really, it's really regular. It's really, everything works out nicely. All these applet classes that have undergone so many sound changes in Old English and Old Earth, they're just right there in Gothic. They're just, you know, Hasn't been uh, messed up yet. Yes. Thanks heavens, nobody really discovered very much Crimean Gothic because it would probably disappoint us. Go, oh no, they lost all their mythology too. Somebody's going to claim that well, you know English is descended from it. Um, they've supposedly found uh, these new know, inscriptions from the Crimea. I don't know whether they're genuine or not, but uh, um, they are but, now. Uh, yeah, I'd like to believe they're genuine. They're actually they they whether uh, somebody the, the thing is they look really Wolfillian. They look really Wolfillian in their in their uh, grammar, which is either means that there was a fairly conservative literary tradition, or, or it means these are got fakes. a copy of White's Gothic <laughs> grammar and inscribed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which one it is yet. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't it hasn't yet revolutionized the world of Germanic philology, but it would be nice. Um, so there we go, Gothic. Learn Gothic, um, and write a song in it, please, and then we'll have a talk about it. What else have we got going on? Gothic has a... If Signum has a Gothic class, you will be there. Excellent. We'll see you there um, when, when it happens. <laughs> what else have we got going on for Old Norse uh, things that we can talk about? Norse made it down the vocal. Are there any Slavic words in Old Norse? Few. I think there, there might be at least an Old Norse. Like, I mean some river names and things. Uh, I'm not sure if that counts. Are there any Old Norse words in Slavic? A lot. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I don't know enough about Slavic. Not, but not as many. I'm exaggerating a little, but um, there are some words that are Slavic in origin in Germanic. Uh, you know, goes pretty far back. I'm thinking of the word, um, the etymology of Baldr, the god Baldr. Uh, disputed etymology, but one of them is potentially from, uh, I think it's Baal, which is like a Lithuanian form, which means bright or sort of white in color. So that's one of the options. Well, there uh, have also been some arguments that the story of Baldr fits into some circumbaltic pattern. So maybe the etymology and the bit of the narrative is shared. I don't know. 
I'm not sure I want to go there right now and stick my neck out, but <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, so there's it's, some there's some Norse and 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 what about Slavic and Norse? Um, mostly names. Yeah, very few. Uh, there's a recent PhD from Uppsala who wrote about uh, mostly personal names, I think, or no, sorry, they're place names um, mm -hmm. in Old Norse, and they're like all the Slavic ones. There aren't that many, but, you know, for for place names of. What were presumably Slavic-speaking areas? Exactly. So, yeah. like Wendish territory. Thinking of like Yom's, the Yom speaking, mm -hmm. um, and sort of how they're they find themselves in modern Poland. So, hence the huge reenactor circle that frequents there every year. There's a you know like five thousand Viking reenactors that show up in Poland. I think every year, and that's just because of this strange historical connection. Um, Kind of in legendary times too. It's not even really historical times. Anyway, yeah, and the Slavic um, borrowings from Germanic. Uh, so many from Norse. I, mean, I was under the impression a lot of that would be West Germanic borrowings into, into early Slavic. Like the word for even word like word for bread and things like that were borrowed from from Germanic. But I think that's I think that's usually supposed to be from some sort of German rather than. <clears throat> is the Sampo in the in the Kalavala Frodi's mill? Ah, the Sampo. What is the Sampo? <laughs> We're getting off topic here, but um, <laughs> could there be some relationship between? Well, I think you know when you look, look at the myth of the Sampo, it's it's pretty much a, it looks to me I don't know like a Viking Age kind of myth that you're going on a raid to get you know the magic MacGuffin. Um, okay. Wow, if there's a mythological MacGuffin, it's the Sampo, really. Nobody has the slightest idea what it is. Um, but it's awesome, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. There could be something there. Uh... <laughs> so there's a comment, I, I guess. I think I can say much more without saying something crazy. But I guess Gothic is a Russian influence on Germanic. No. Gothic was in an area that is now in the modern Ukraine, I think, mostly. Um, and that's kind of the reason why when Jan van Busbeck, I think his name, this Dutch traveler who found the Crimean Gothic in the 17th century, I believe, um, whether that's authentic Gothic or not is disputed, but um, at least there is no direct sign of any influence of, of the languages on each other. They just happen to be in an area that currently is occupied by Slavic speaking people. Um, that's really, Gothic was, you know, Obviously, Germanic in origin. They probably came from Scandinavia. No one knows where. There's a whole saga from uh, one of the only non-West Norse sagas. <laughs> Very short. It's Guta Saga. It's about the, the island of Gotland, a Swedish island in the Baltic. Um, and that's a sort of origin story that, that even in that story mentions how there are people living uh, somewhere in that area um, who, who speak something of our tongue or something of our language. So that's what the, the Gotlanders, medieval Gotlanders believed that they were, you know, maybe somehow uh, the, the ones who remained behind in Scandinavia after the Goths left. Uh, it's, it's a little iffy, but. Yeah, it's hard to tell how much of that, it, you know, could be even learned influence because all this stuff was banging around, you know, people read Jordanus and Jordanus or however we're going to yeah. say his name. Um, so. I mean that was a that became a trope, you know, 
thing, things come out of Scandinavia. Um, how much of it was really true? I mean, factory of nations or whatever. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, did Burgundians really come from Bornholm, you know, which was Borgunderholm in Old Norse? I don't know. Everybody says Burgundians speak an East Germanic language, but they came from Burgunderholm. How does this work? Um, it's all a bit, you know, wild and free, uh, you know, imaginings of medieval authors. And but it is could all be. The Rus are Swedish. So the, Rush, the original Russian state, the Kievan Rus, those are Swedes. I mean, not in any modern national sense, but Swedish Viking Age people who lived in what is currently Sweden. Um, and I would even say during that time, they were from the area that was then known as Sweden. Because there were two Swedens. If you remember from Beowulf, there is actual Sweden. And then there is the uh, uh, Yitland or Jutland, the southern part, which is um, everything but oh, Skull. you were talking about the two Swedens, because wasn't like there was Svjothjoth in Mikla or, you know, whatever. There was Great Sweden. And that referred to Russia, right? I mean, am I remembering yeah. that correctly? Not in well, Beowulf. Their, Sweden was divided in half, essentially. And yeah. The part that was actually called Sweden, even back then, is where the people, the Rus, were from. Sure, Svealand. Yeah, yeah Svealand, to be Wasn't there a term in Old Norse that was like, you know, Great Sweden or Big Sweden, and that somehow referred to... It's like, like Russia and... Yeah, Russia and, and the Middle East and Africa. Yeah, and everything, everything, all that stuff. You know, go east, young man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's, it's it's kind of the unknown territory of Russia. That's, that's yeah, where like Ingvar the Far Traveled ends up and all that kind of thing. And Saint Olaf uh, is from there. Oh, it's yeah. Uh, Kievan Rus. Um, there has to have been some influence culturally. I mean, he showed up in the saga. It's literary, I know, but he showed up in the saga wearing Russian clothes. Um, and he went by the name Olaver Ingersky, which is the guy from Gardariki, which is Russia. Um, so he's, you know, the great patron saint of Norway who was a vicious uh, warlord and murderer. Um, in any case, though, I mean, he's the, the saint of Norway. Um, he's a Russian. So there you go. He's a Swedish Russian. Uh, interfering, in Norway. interfering in people's <laughs> elections since yeah. the 11th century. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but actually, that reminds me, people were talking about what sagas are good ones to start with. I think Harald's Saga, Harald Rather, is another fun one. There's a lot of, speaking of Russia and going to Constantinople and all these kind of things, Harald's Saga, Harald Rather, that could be another fun one. It's not terribly long extracted from Heimskringla, I don't think, but it's got a lot of crazy stuff in it. Um, not as crazy as Volsunga Saga, but... Um, if you like the crazy stuff, uh, Hervarer Saga is also, or Heidrich Saga, or whatever you want to call it. It's completely incoherent, but but it but it's, uh, it's, such it's a got a lot of wonderful mess. Bits, you know, it's it's a mess, but it's a wonderful mess. Uh, there's every kind of nutty thing in there too. I might not throw that at like my you know first time saga. You know, well, uh, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe the whole maybe thing. Like, this is a good example. Volsaga <laughs> <laughs> like Saga is at least. A little more coherent. Not always no. coherent, but <laughs> compared to Hervar Saga. Uh, Hervar Saga is awesome. If you take just stuff out of Hervar Saga, it's great. So those are actually from, in, in all of those legendary tales, there is actually the Huns, and there's a question about uh, any language from the Huns. Um, Hungarian is from the Huns, um, but not Old Norse, no. Is it Hungarian? 
Are you sure? It makes sense, Hun, Hungarian. No. And there are a lot of people in Hungary named Attila. Actually, my my feeling was that people hadn't really pinned down the language of the Huns. There's, yeah, I mean, there's I a lot of names I'll... and things, but they're badly recorded by people who didn't speak the language. And it's really there's a good book. I think probably the still the best book is that Otto Menschenhelfen guy uh, who wrote it a while ago, like World of the Huns or something it's called. I think you can find it freely available online now. And even he concludes, like, I, I can't figure it out. But isn't Hungarian ultimately, like, it's you know, Finno Finno-Ugric, yes. which means Finnish and Hungarian, but, um, yeah. well, okay, and Estonian and Sami and things. So they're, they're, they're but it's, even, it's even free. It's not even, like, it's not hugely like Finnish, but um, no. I think it's people are like the Huns. They spoke a language, but and it's also difficult to pin down who the Huns are because they seem to have just slurped up so many other groups, including Germanic speaking groups, which are sort of on the tail end. You know, we find out about that because they got to Europe. But before, you know, and, and Greek, Greek and Roman speaking or writing authors wrote it down. But clearly, you know, a lot of other people got slurped up before the Huns came along. And as Tolkien likes to make the point, you know, probably almost doesn't need to be made, you know, Attila is a Germanic name, a Gothic name. Yeah. Uh, um, and so the only way we know the most famous Hun is by, you know, a non-Hunnish name, presumably. A mafia nickname, basically. A mafia yeah, yeah. nickname. Little daddy. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he made an offer that nobody could refuse. Um, but that's exactly it. You know, you ended up becoming a Hun. Uh, even Iranians, you know, and you might be speaking still some other language. You might be speaking Sarmatian, you know, an Indo-Iranian language or a Germanic language or something that's since disappeared from the face of the earth, or you might be speaking what was ever originally Hunnish. But <laughs> so there we go. But Volsunga saga. Remember, Volsunger is king of Hunland. So it's a good, fun, multi-ethnic kind of melange out there. Let's see. Yes, so, oh, we I accidentally answered, isn't Go uh, Attila a Gothic name? Yes. Oh, poor Huns and everything else. Well, at least, you know, we're not talking about Texas still. Um. <laughs> it looks like there's a question about, oh, I just lost it. Um, someone's teaching and wants to know about modern, uh, modern retellings that are useful in the classroom. The question was right in front of me a moment ago, but I forgot it. Um, there it is. Uh, so besides Wagner, Tolkien, Marvel, um, but says probably can't read Gaiman over the weekend. Yeah, that's probably kind of a lot. Um, you might look at some of the. Uh, yeah. um, there are a lot of like really good um, like children's stories and talk about using the myths or sort of for teaching purposes for um, for kids. Um, there's Diana Wynne Jones, Eight Days of Luke. If anyone's familiar with it, um, that's delightful. Um, but there's been a lot of recent um, children's books. That are based on Norse mythology. That might be a quick thing. Here, show your students. So you there's like a that. there's like a million children's Beowulfs now too. Um, mm -hmm. I second the uh, Eight Days of Luke. Uh, I mean, even if you're not needing to teach anything, it's it's a fun book. Yeah. Uh, so we have another question. What do we do? Any of us have a favorite Old Norse poem? Ah, uh, it's like choosing your favorite child. Um, <laughs> you can't tell anyone, but no. Um, <laughs> that's tough, actually. Um, it is It is tough um, to pick just one. Um, 
because you know it's like everything else it's like your you know your favorite viking metal album you know i mean it changes from time to time uh, what mood you're in exactly are we more enslaved are we more amonomarth are we you know um but uh you know i think i think i, I in some ways it's not even really a you know, it's, it's one of the kind of lost ones, but I, you know, um, Nelson was mentioning Hairvire Saga, and I, I still like the Waking of Angantyr, and I like the Battle of the Goths and the Huns, partially because it is a bit great. Waking of Angantyr is, you know, it's just fun. I mean, it's, it's reasonably comprehensible, it's reasonably complete, there's a narrative there. Um, it's not too complex trying to figure out what's going on, and it's, you know, it's just fun. I like that one. I have a strange liking for the Helgi poems, which are a disaster area, but I just like the Helgi poems. Uh, Helgi Hundingsbana and Helgi Hjorvartherson and all those guys um, who are the same guys or whatever. Uh, you know, you can pick obvious ones that everybody goes back to, like you know, Vulispau is you know is 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 cool and um, you know stuff like that and Halvamal. We you know we need them to really. I mean, there's so much for our understanding of Norse mythology that comes out of those. You can't really say, oh no, I don't like Vulispau, um, but um, maybe somebody will. But you know, just for fun, I think you know, Waking of Angantyr is a lot of fun. Um, Helgi poems are kind of fun too, but they are a mess, um, even more than Hervar. So. The first one, the first one is pretty reasonable. First one is is reasonably sensible. Um, isn't that the the younger of them? Isn't the second Helgi Hundingsbani the supposed to be the older one? I don't know. They're fun though. Usually, I mean, if nothing else, you go the rule of thumb. If it makes more sense, it's probably younger, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what about you guys? I probably kind of have to go with the classic uh, sort of blood and death hero saga of Atlakvida. Um, Atlakvida is awesome. Which, yeah. um, or maybe Hamdi Small, um, one, of the, one of those two. They're both really, I mean, you know, burning halls and feeding children to Attila the Hun. And, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, blood and gore and violence and whatever, but. Yeah, I'd look for that. That's a good one too. They're all my favorite. Melissa? Yeah, I just second the Atlas Vita. Um, I think that's that's a good choice. Um, I like just for just pure fun, something like Locusena and stuff, which is just, you know, incredibly rude, but that's why it's really fun. So when you said you have a favorite poem, that's actually the first one that popped up in So I, I guess I have to own up to that. <laughs> Oh, I forget if it was really, is it just Eddic poetry? Because if it's... Oh, no, poetry, I mean, you're going for... We can bring in scholarly poetry. Just said poetry. Eva's saga has four large poems. All of them are hilarious in their own ways. And, I mean, beautiful. Um, what is it? Uh, Sona Torak is probably his most, like... I don't know if you want something that's beautiful and kind of sentimental for medieval people didn't have emotions like we have today. It, it seems in the literature, it's not the same type of expression. Everything is formal. Certainly saga authors are trying very hard to hide them if they did. Yeah, the psychological dimensions they only come through in Old Norse literature through the poetry, and that's one of the you know like psychologically deep in a for a, for a medieval poem it's 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 wonderful but his um uh, Hubert's license his uh, head ransom poem is is also good just kind of the guy who he cursed out of norway by putting a dead horse on a stick and carving runes on it he's it's a phrase um you know it's a yeah head ransom poem saves his own you know what from getting killed and 
Um, but masterful skill. I mean, Ailes' poetry, whether it's real, really from that one man or not, is it's probably Snowdery, by the way. That is actually coming back in fashion. Snowdery wrote Snowdery as, Ailes' saga. I have, <laughs> I have seen that coming back into fashion. Is it also back into fashion that Snowdery wrote the poems? Probably. Okay. Because then the ones in Eagle Saga are better than the ones at the back of the Prosetta, but yeah. <laughs> the catalog of metrics, unless Nelson disagrees. But, yeah. <laughs> but well, you're right, those ones are good. Yeah. Uh, if you want um, nice emotional poetry as well, the first Gudenarkida uh, is also has a really nice expression of a grief. And it's the uh, lament. Okay. It's so, one of the nice things about Norse poetry, I think, is that it's really, even you know, just in the just in the Codex Regius, you got a really wide range of poems and themes and emotions and styles, and so, so yeah, it makes for you know, doesn't get. I mean, some of the poems are not as good. <laughs> you know, we could talk about Albert Small, right, as well. Uh, but um, the ones that are good are really good, and they cover cover a really nice range of of literature. So one of the things we had as our kind of big picture thing is some of the challenges to teaching Norse, which I think we should really talk about more learning it um, than the teaching aspect. Um, and I had just a couple notes here. I wanted to get uh, you guys' opinion on impersonal sentences. Uh, impersonal sentences. How challenging are those without, um, uh, you know, someone to explain what they mean? And, and how they work because old old Icelandic and modern Icelandic still is probably one of the most impersonal languages possible. And I mean that in a purely grammatical sense. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm almost surprised there aren't more of them, uh, you know, the way <laughs> old Norse literature goes. It, it, they could have made all the sentences impersonal they would have. <laughs> me, it seems, is kind of, it is always implied. So I think if you insert the word, Insert it, um, it usually will help you. But it's it's always that indirect thing like mere kalt. It's that, um, to me, it is cold. Um, it's the same in German, mies kalt. I mean, in Icelandic and German. English used to have some more of those, like me seems, and you yeah, know, we think they, um, yeah, me But I mean, in Icelandic, you have hundreds of these. Yeah. And they're common phrases, you can't ignore them. We thought is you know. Oh, well, this, this was that. one of the things that came up when, when at least in my section, when when Nelson and I were doing the recent Old Norse class for Signum, and I thought actually, I mean, I think once you see these impersonal constructions and you start to see a few of them, you get you get you get used to them. But there was almost a sense I felt that there are so many things in Old Norse that are similar to modern English. I mean, not the obvious, you know, no, you know, the definite articles and SK verbs are a little bit different, but there are so many things that can be the same. And it's, you know, if you were coming from another first language besides English or one of the other Germanic languages, there would be a lot higher cost. Um, and so it's almost a surprise when students run into the things in Old Norse that are different, like impersonal sentences, which we don't have so much. Um, I mean, you can get past the definite article brief quickly, but the impersonal sentence and some of those constructions, and it was almost a case of the challenge was, well, when Old Norse actually gets foreign, 
<laughs> um, when it actually does something that English doesn't do, that was where the, the challenge came in because people would sail on through so much of the syntax because we know English is descended from old norms. Um, <laughs> um, that when you ran into something that was weird, that was actually, you know, a little bit harder to get your head around. Um, and, you know, like you say, the impersonal sentences, other places where things were assumed or implied or left out. Um, that's what I thought was, you know, as a learner, like you say, um, that was kind of like one of the challenges. <laughs> it's like, oh, it all looks so familiar. And then suddenly, boom. And all of a sudden you have uh, verb adverb collocation. So in other words, a verb with a preposition uh, that's kind of adverbial. And if you look up just any common verb like um, coma uh, to come, you'll find if you add any of the prepositions and add something else to those, uh, you have about a thousand different meanings you can make out of a single verb using maybe 12, 13 prepositions. And it really depends. <laughs> Um, a lot of those are similar um, to English, but of course, English does something similar, but yeah, like not to the same way. To, to wake up, like to come to to wake yeah. up, but there are hundreds of those, and you you just you lose track of them. They're actually quite easy to get lost. That's probably the most yeah. challenging thing in Old Norse. You spend a lot of time going through the dictionary, and being okay. Where's the with preposition <laughs> section of the of oh the and Yeah, and then you know the the verb will you know, mean one thing if it takes the accusative, and a completely different thing if it takes the dative. And um, you know, people are looking at you like, but this is the same verb, uh, you know. But you know, honestly, Eng English does a lot of those similar kinds of things, you know, with its phrasal verbs. And I can tell you, as somebody who trains you know, um, English teachers to teach other people modern English. Wow, does that stuff mess with your head if you're not used to it? Um, you know, you're, and it's the same kind of thing. You, you know, here, you know, teaching English to Spanish speakers, there are a lot of points of similarity between Spanish and English grammar, of course, but phrasal verbs are not one of them. Um, phrasal verbs or the, you know, that kind of pattern, particle verbs in Germanic, that's a particular thing. And it just, it just, throws everybody off terribly. How can you use the verb get with so many different semi-adverbial kind of preposition things and it means nothing to do with either getting or anything else that you... Um, so I find that with Old Norse. Um, what about Melissa yeah, just, Nelson? Yeah, make, make sense with your dictionary. Um, be prepared to go through those lists. Um, there's, I, I've, I've not found a good shortcut other than just, yeah. Yeah, make friends with the dictionary and be prepared to sift through the definitions for a long time. Yeah, I guess the one thing um I might say is if you're looking to read, someone mentioned the Viking Society edition of Egil's Saga, for instance, and, and something like that is good, or something out of Gordon is good if you're starting to get going, because those will have smaller the glossaries <laughs> uh, that are dedicated to the occurrences in the text. And those, you know, that's a big help if you're, because you don't have to sift through everything in Zoega or everything and please be vigorous images, you know, that's a lot in there. Uh, uh, you know, you can, you, you, it's a little more tailored to what you're doing at that moment. I think that was actually one of the fun things in Jesse Bayek's books um, where he has the, the frequency lists. I don't know if any of you have seen those, but he has, it's only for saga pros, but he says, you know, these are the X, you know, most common nouns and the X most common adverbs. And for a beginner, that can be a good, you know, a good help. Because um, obviously some of them are, are pretty obvious and similar to English, you know, also, but some of them aren't. So that can be a good start. You know, if even if you just learn the 10 most common of every part of speech, 
Well, that get, that'll get you a long way in a lot of beginning saga texts. Um, I found the speeches are the hardest to read and because it's so stylized. I mean, other than poetry, which is obvious. Um, Attic poetry is not as difficult, but I mean, um, but spoke, but the sort of quoted speeches that kings give or these really long, really fake, um, <laughs> definitely literary inventions uh, of kind of dialogues at the all thing or something. I mean, they, they're using a highly stylized form of Old Norse that was probably not even something anyone had ever used, like an actual speech. So even the sagas aren't pure reflections of, rea of you know historical reality. <laughs> they're not. They're not recordings of oral tradition. <laughs> well, they are complicated because some of them are. I mean, they're syncretic is probably our best word, right? They're syncretic oral and literary traditions. I mean, they're combining them, and some are purely literary. Some so are translations. Some is the Eddie poetry too, but yeah. But the the speech of kings and the speech of important people when they just kind of go and it's really different than the pro the regular prose. The storytelling prose is extremely straightforward. Um, that's the nicest thing is like when you take Alaric's magic sheet for the grammar. If you guys haven't seen that. He has one for old English too, I believe. He does. And modern uh, Icelandic. Those are quite nice. I mean, the Gordon grammar and then the, the Viking Society grammar is a little bit too long for just kind of a quick, uh, I can't remember, is this the accusative or the dative form or something like that. Um, but I mean, the, if other, thing really, that, the other thing that annoyed me most about the, the Viking Society grammar, which we did use and it was, you know, it's usable and it's, it's good and all that stuff, but it's not Unicode. Yeah. And you're trying to search for like Thorn and it's like an FI ligature or something. I'm like, okay, I know you started doing this in like, you know, the late nineties, but come on. <laughs> but anyway, but that's that I find, you know, you mentioned you make friends, Melissa mentioned make friends with your dictionary. And I find it very useful to make friends with your electronic dictionary. There are, I don't think any, well, there is the, the Cleesby, most of Cleesby Vigvison has been digitized, hasn't it? Um, and certainly Zoega. Um, and being able to search for, you know, once you get used to kind of reducing things, their morphemes, and you get used to thinking, oh, if it's got a hooked O, then maybe it's really an A and stuff like that. Then you can search there really quickly instead of like sitting there with Cleesby Vigneson and, you know. Oh, you can afford the physical Cleesby Vigneson. Well, no, but, you know, if you were, if you were at a university or something and you went down, you know, Hey, you know, when I when I was a lad, we didn't have the online version. Um, you had to go and like get the one copy of Cleesby Vixen that like you know was in the reference room, and um, you know, shuffle through it looking for the thing. And so, make friends with your electronic resources too. I mean, there's a amount of old Norse that's just available online, you know, because people have digitized all those old saga editions. Maybe they're a little bit modern Icelandic or something like that. But they're online, you know, critical editions and diplomatic editions from the early 20th century are like on archive.org. Um, the amount of stuff that an old Norse learner can get a hold of is just huge, you know, and easily. You can, you can, okay, Gordon, I understand, is actually kind of hard to get a hold of these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, unless you're scratching around rush, dodgy Russian corners of the internet. There are a lot of Russian corners of the internet. Just not, <laughs> not that I recommend that. Um, and, and same with Valfels and Kathy. Um, but you can, or, you, can or, you can down, you can get the Viking Society's grammars for you. 
Jesse bikes aren't hugely expensive. The amount of texts that are available online and just online re learning resources. There's that. Speaking of Texas, there's like it's in Austin. The you know the the Indo-European website. Austin has a whole sequence like you know old, online Old Norse thing, and you can just you know make use of all those things. And the learner can do quite a bit. Um, definitely a lot more than when I was a teenager trying to find somebody to teach me <laughs> anything. <laughs> It, and it also depends on what you're, why are you learning the language? Are you learning it to read the literature and understand? Or are you learning it from the historical linguistic standpoint? In which case, I think you're better with traditional approaches. If you've learned Latin, uh, Gordon is probably still going to be more like in the traditional path. I mean, you'll understand the Gordon assumes you learned, you know, you had Greek and Latin literally. Again, any good, any good British assessment of the early 20th century knew fluent Latin and, Greek, and ancient Greek. I mean, it's, yeah. Or if you're Bruce Dickinson or, um, <laughs> I have gone uh, to a, a respectable really public school in England, but. Nice to have something newer that would present the historical side of the language in a, I mean, there's, there's a couple of good things in German, but I don't know if there's really anything in English that does that these days. That, no, um, I think is the answer. Not comprehensively. Not even, I mean, no, <laughs> just no, there isn't. And there should be, we should write that. Um, <laughs> bring in some Gothic and things on the side. There's, I mean, you can stitch together a lot of things. If you are interested in the historical linguistic side, there is a lot of, but you have to go through a lot and stitch, stitch pieces together. Um, but there's not a good comprehensive overview. Uh, I mean, you know, probably, Probably the back of Gordon is still, you know, if you find it on dodgy Russian corners of the internet, instead of paying whatever exorbitant fee uh, used copies now command. Um, but the back of Gordon is probably as good an introduction to the historical grammar as anything. Um, that's about it. Um, there is that giant book of... Uh, Nordic linguistics or whatever it is, the Nordic languages, Oscar Bandel editor and about 50 other people. But that's like some giant book. And unless you find that on Daji Russian or in corners of the internet, you're, nobody has it. So um, the only people who read that are people who frequent Daji Russian corners of the internet. That's me. I have all of these. <laughs> if you want to find me, look me up. <laughs> I don't mind sharing. Well, the rest of us don't have to go to the dodgy Russian corners of the internet. But you can just talk to Paul. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, you, um, Nelson was mentioning, you know, Gordon is great, uh, or was it Paul that was mentioning, is Gordon is great if you know Latin, if you know, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, that was, you know, certainly again when Nelson and I were teaching the Old Norse course. I don't know if you, you noticed this, Nelson. You, pro you must have, because some of the people who taken the course had already taken Latin, had already taken Old English. Um, and both of those were huge advantages when trying to learn Old Norse. And we go the other way too. If you, Old Norse was the first highly inflected Indo-European language you learned, then like I say, Old, Old English ain't nothing but a thing. Um, you can get right on in there. There's so much, so much similar. But that is, you know, that's a huge startup cost also in Old Norse. If you haven't done, you know, the case system and things like that before, then it will take a little longer. But if you have, you know, then goes the other way. If you learned Old Norse and then want to learn Old English, wow, you've got, you know, a huge bonus there. Same with Gothic or Old High German or Old Saxon, or even Old Frisian once you get past this writing. Yeah. 
Um, well, if you want to do it the unorthodox way, you can do what I did. And the first first old dramatic language I really studied seriously was actually Gothic. Uh, and then that's actually it's so nice and regular. So you move right into Old Norse, and then you can kind of see. Like, oh, clearly Old Norse is descended from Gothic. <laughs> yes, uh, lineal descendant. <laughs> Uh, everyone should learn Old Saxon, too. If you really want to learn about the Christianization of Germanic people, that's yeah, one of the most interesting, the Haliont is the most yeah, interesting yeah. text from that standpoint of just uh, sort of, that's it's like the Beowulf version of... Yeah, the, the Gospel According to Beowulf. <laughs> yeah. Tagline that I remember from when I was a student. Um, <laughs> it really does read like that. They're all, they're not this, they're all like thanes sitting around drinking apple wine and stuff. Jesus is a Germanic warrior, of course, a warrior king. <laughs> I mean, but that's about three centuries earlier than Old Norse literature. I mean, excluding runic inscriptions, of course, but I mean, it's, it's about three centuries earlier. So it really is closer to Beowulf times. I'm not going to get into that debate, but it's closer to approximately when Beowulf was first recorded in some written form somewhere in England. I don't know which dialect anyway. So. But we do know it's ninth century, um, the old Saxon alien. And I mean, that's Nobody's fighting about that. a lot of this. So. The oldest forms of Old Norse we have are skaldic poetry. I mean, in the written tradition, like on manuscripts, non-runic things. Are we ignoring the runic, you know, okay, the runic tradition. No, I'm not ignoring them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, also from the historical point of view, you know, runic, the fact that we don't usually do more with runic, I mean, they're always in there. There's a few things in the reader. They're in Gordon. They're in, you know, the, uh, they're in, you know, Jesse's book. They're in things. But from a point of view of, you know, if you want to get into the historical aspects of the language, you know, weird stuff happens in runes. It's Viking age. Um, there are times when you almost have to know, you know, you're late proto-Germanic to figure out what's going on. Um, and I think it's too bad that we don't do more of that. Part of the general demise of, you know, German Germanic philology. Um, but, and I don't think there was so much done in the English speaking world back in the day, you know, back in Tolkien's day, back in, you know, Joseph Wright's day. Um, you know, people were looking more at, you know, straight Old Norse, Old English Gothic, all those things, and they weren't looking at, at the runes as heavy. And that's been largely left to the Scandinavian sphere, I think. And I think, it, you know, still, understandably, that's where the runic inscriptions are. But since we've got access to things like, you know, the Sam Nordic Runetech database and all that kind of good stuff now, there's so much more that could be done with that. And, you know, East Norse is fun. We've got Guta Saga. We've got, you know, we've got weird rhymed chronicles from the later Middle Ages, which, you know, also don't get attention outside of like their home countries. Um, and there's that, you know, the access that we have to this kind of stuff now uh, is, is so wonderful. Um, hopefully we can, you know, do a bit more of that. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of awesome Icelandic, medieval Icelandic literature. We all know that. And it's a good place to start because, you know, whole saga saga is cool. Um, and there's so much saga is even, uh, even up on the Viking Society page. I, I think remember. it is. Yeah. And there is Eldravestiotalagen is up there yet, but where's my Eldravestiotalagen edition? We need more saga translators. We need more saga translators. There are still untranslated sagas. I'm working on Sverig Saga, which you think would be a pretty important Sverig Saga. Oh, Sverig Saga. 
I mean, it's the Faroese pretender king who conquered Norway in like the in the middle of the Civil War. It's the Birchbine faction, but it's like one of the most important sagas of the 13th century history. Um, late, and well, there, was, there was just that movie, wasn't there? The yep, and that's the that's the next saga, which has also it. not been translated about Halcon Halcon or so not. That's so the one. Yeah, skiing and stuff. Yeah. Now, have, has it, have any of you foreseen the movie? I haven't, but it's really bad. That's not a trailer. I couldn't figure out whether it was done in Norwegian, like modern Norwegian, or whether they were trying to do it in Old Norse. Because I never really saw. cheesy modern Norwegian. It's perfect. Cheesy it's, modern yeah. Norwegian. Yeah, it's not even like normal. It's purposefully <laughs> pretend archaic, and it has the guy oh. from Game of Thrones with the big red beard. Forsooth, I am. Yeah, it's for the guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let us sit upon a mountain and tell sad stories. And yeah. <laughs> oh well. Maybe it's better if you can't understand Norwegian then. Uh, probably. <laughs> but yeah. only a little. They just shout "Birke uh, the You know, birch legs oh. over and over, and that's the. You know, that's. So. Too much aquavit backstage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really cheesy, but it is almost as good as a dead snow. So it's, you know, it's got some competition in the realm of Norwegian comedy, unintended comedy in some cases. So, anyway, there are a couple of good saga movies out there too. There's that um, Icelandic one of Giza saga. Yep, Utlayan, uh, the outlaw. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you can find those on Russian now with with English subtitles. So. Everyone can watch that. I mean, I've seen some like that are like weirdly dubbed. I think. Am I thinking of that? Maybe it was Russian dubbing. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find those now. Yeah, Utlayan and Hrafn Hrafn Flugin, something like. That. Yeah, Raven flying. Yeah, 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 that's one. Hrafn yeah. Seeger. Yeah. That's that's a little fantasy-ish, but it's yeah. it's okay. It's okay. And there was another. There was, I think, another one in that series in Iceland that I, that I haven't seen. It was like. It was even more fantasy. It was like Oscar and Embla or something, Oscar and Embla or something. It got all a bit freaky, but uh, yeah. Well, we'll see. I think they are going to produce maybe some saga. Maybe Mel Gibson will make his movie fine. <laughs> his uh, uh, Apocalypto or um, <laughs> Ragnarokko. Yeah, Ragnarokko. <laughs> <laughs> But it would be nice. I mean, they tried it in the Viking show on the History Channel where they did try to do some Old Norse and Old English and failed really bad on both accounts, I think. I mean, it's just the actors weren't trained properly and they were speaking like this bad um, kind of modern Icelandic mixed with like an idiot who doesn't know anything. That's um, really my reconstructed Old Norse line. anyway. But They had Icelanders on the set. <laughs> teaching them phonetically how to do these lines and just failing at everything. So Lagertha <laughs> is the worst. Um, you know, that's... Well, know, like, you know, do we believe in Lagertha's existence anyway? Um. <laughs> well, that's... That, the Vikings is obsessed with women and power, and that's not... That's something that's been exaggerated in pop culture. I'm actually... No, Very surprised to find out how much power women did have in the Middle Ages, especially in Viking Age society. But it's been overdone. I mean, that's kind bit. of the, 
more than a little bit. It's like the theme of the whole show <laughs> is that women can take over earldoms or something. And I think you want to watch the show. Oh, you have to see it so bad. You have to see I've it. I've been scared to see it. I did listen to the soundtrack because it has the guy from, you know, Wardrun or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, I haven't, I've been too scared to watch the show. I think I was traumatized by the film adaptation of Rhoda Orm, and, you know, I've never really recovered, but. <laughs> it's worth it. I mean, Neil Price was consulted on some of the stuff. So that's like, you know, the mythology. Okay, so anytime there's something. They, they got some of the bloody stuff right. And that the rituals were. Thank heavens for that. Particularly trying to spray blood and that sort of thing, and that is really what they did. So they find this blood all uh, at the archaeological sites where the temples were. Bless oh. you, my son. <laughs> Etymologically speaking, they cut the horse on the right vein to make it spray on purpose for okay. effect. I mean, and this was part of the religion. Maybe it was like greater devotion, and it was just a nice horror show for everyone to watch. Um, but it's you know blood. That's why it's called bloat, right? It has to be related to. Blood yeah. and blessing. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, well, I don't know how we're doing on time here. I think um, we're running over a little. Maybe, uh, but there's so much. Start wrapping it up at some point. Yeah. And Gothic goodness and old Frisian goodness. And they're all descended from modern English. But, um, I actually have an MA student whose oral exam is in about 20 minutes. So I might need to run away oh. for, for over time. <laughs> I think I'm supposed to be having a student meeting, actually. Well, no. <laughs> they haven't knocked on the door. So. <laughs> okay. Right. So. It was great chatting with everyone. I think we'll. we'll yeah. Have, we should do yeah. this again yeah. sometime. We yeah. should. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so this is going to be the first faculty confab all things Norse. Uh, video uh, with a parental warning because we had to discuss root words. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, have, we'll, we'll have a special session on root words another time. Uh, so we can discuss Bergen runic inscriptions as well. <laughs> well, so this was awesome. Did we catch uh, most of the questions? Uh, has anyone watched? They'll just spin through and get the last thing. Uh, Richard, you'll have to write Paul to get his email and and traverse dodgy corners of Greater Sweden, Sweden, um, and Gartha Ricky, the Gartha Ricky yeah, web. Uh, Last Kingdom. I haven't seen the Last Kingdom stuff, um, so I can't say anything about that really. I did. It was terrible, but I liked it because for the for <laughs> not, not for historically accurate reasons though. It's it's awful. It makes no sense, but. I, I, everybody likes violence and sex, and that's kind of the nature sex of and violence. TV shows and, you know, sort of ahistorical medieval epics like Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones actually has a lot more accurate medieval themes than some of these ones that pertain to the Viking Age. I know that's... That's probably true. Weird. It's because they didn't try to speak Old Norse, so they're, they're no. good. They speak other fake languages, like um, nobody can fault their Dothraki pronunciation. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's an agglutinating I language. The guy who wrote it out is sitting there, being like, "No, I don't have any yeah, just get it right." <laughs> you did it wrong. 
That's okay. They can fix it in ADR. They just dub it over again. It'll be fine. They can get a native speaker. Dub it over. <laughs> wow, we're kind of kind of reluctant to shit that. Can we can we find other old Norse things to keep talking about for the next six hours? Probably we could, but we shouldn't. Um, I probably need to run because my student's exam is, is very soon, and I, yeah. I need okay. to not be late for her oral exam. Yeah. Well, that's a good enough oh. reason for us all to <laughs> wrap it up, spin it down. Yeah. Okay. Right. Oh. Well, well, Nelson, you're the myth host. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll just end it here. So, bye. <laughs> okay. And this is going to be online, I think. If you get to see it. Um, you know, do let them know. I think. Um, um, go to Signum and sign up for their courses, bother them, tell them to teach Gothic. Um, tell them to have another All Things Norse online session. Okay. All right. All right. Bye, all. Nice seeing you. Yeah.